kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 through 17. Acts 18, beginning in verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law... Look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. In our last study, the gospel came to the city of Corinth, and at least one congregation was established, but perhaps more than one. Sometimes it is difficult to discern how the believers organized in the large metropolitan centers of the ancient world. In Acts 18, verses 2 through 3, Paul seems to live with a Christian husband and wife named Aquila and Priscilla. It is very likely that from the time he met with them, uh, they constituted a congregation in Corinth and met for worship in their house. We know that Aquila and Priscilla had a congregation meet in their house in Ephesus, according to 1 Corinthians 16, 19, and in Rome, according to Romans 15, verses 3 through 5. So it's reasonable to assume that the same situation existed in Corinth. Eventually, it seems, the House of Justice became a meeting place for another congregation that was formed out of the local synagogue. One of the synagogue elders, a man named Crispus, was baptized along with his family, and more and more of the citizens of Corinth were being added all the time. There were, however, threats to the stability of the work from early on. Before the establishment of the congregation that met in Justice's house, Paul was joined by Silas and Timothy, and evidently Timothy, who had previously visited Thessalonica, brought a report with him about the situation in the church there. And this report occasioned the writing of the first epistle to the Thessalonians, which we have in our Bible today. Timothy brought good news, according to 1 Thessalonians 3.6, and there was much positive to say about the faith of the saints there, but there seems to have also been some accusations made against the original missionaries by some who were trying to turn the brethren there against them perhaps claiming that they, especially Paul and Silas, did not really care about the Christians there, and that's why they had left so quickly and had not returned. They accused Paul of having taken advantage of the Christians and then skipped town like some sort of a snake oil salesman. There also seems to have been some problems with sexual immorality and covetousness because both of these matters received special mention by Paul. 
Perhaps the most striking section of the letter is toward the conclusion when Paul reveals that the congregation had some strange misconceptions about the second coming. It seems that they had certain teachers and members among them who obsessed over this issue. But it also seems that the return of Jesus Christ was a major theme in apostolic preaching, because it was frequently discussed within the early Christian communities, as evidenced by this and many other apostolic writings. We're not sure who delivered this first letter, but when they returned, the further report they brought occasioned a second epistle almost immediately to address further developments regarding some of the issues in the church there. As Paul worried over the congregations he had left stretched across Greece, the situation in Corinth began to weigh upon him as well. It is possible that Paul was already beginning to encounter among his new converts here some of the challenges related to the debauchery of Corinthian culture that he addressed in the famous letter he wrote to them on a later occasion. However, what Luke records indicates that Paul's chief concerns were regarding his own physical safety in light of the increasing opposition he was receiving from the local synagogue. Whatever was most troublesome to Paul, it seems that he was becoming discouraged and wondering if he should continue the ministry here. When verse 9 says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. We've encountered visions like this before, though not often. Remember that this was not a normative experience even in the infant church. And even less often did the Lord himself appear or speak. In fact, other than Paul, there's only one record in Acts of Jesus directly communicating to anyone, and that was Ananias, who was being called to heal and baptize Paul. We do not know if Ananias saw Jesus or simply had a vision and heard Jesus speak. Paul actually indicates that he was the last person to see the risen Lord, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8. Paul himself testifies that he was blessed with an abundance of revelations and visions, 2 Corinthians 12.1, which I take to mean that he had an extraordinary number. And this blessing caused him to require some extraordinary trials and hardships to keep him from being exalted above measure in pride, according to 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 7. Paul grieved over the added hardships and even prayed for them to be taken away if possible. But he did not seem to scorn the blessing. In fact, it was through the hardships that the richness of the blessing was made manifest. Paul suffered greatly, perhaps more than any other man but Jesus in his service to God. But he was empowered to press forward by glimpses of the Lord's face. As the old hymn suggests, just one glimpse of him in glory will the toils of life repay. And by precious words of assurance which the Lord spoke into his heart. And here were some such words. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. We can see the obvious comfort of the last clause, no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And we'll discuss that statement more in just a moment. But the heart of the consolation is actually in the first words. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. Sometimes harm does come, and sometimes harvests are small. 
But this line is the perennial promise God gives to all of his servants. Recently, I've been reading the book of Jeremiah, and there we have almost the same words spoken by God to the ancient prophet. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 1, verses 7-8. through 8. Did Paul think of these words when Jesus spoke to him? If so, did he think of how the promise was fulfilled to Jeremiah? Indeed, God delivered Jeremiah, at least to the conclusion of his ministry. And that's really what these words promise, not total or final exemption from suffering or harm in this life or death at the end, but perseverance and preservation to accomplish the work that God has given. Just so, Jesus is not telling Paul that he will not suffer, but that he will not be killed or harmed in such a way that it would prevent his ministry in that city. For, Jesus says, I have many people in this city. Many commentators have observed that Luke does not explain what Jesus meant by this statement and have proceeded to offer all kinds of theories as to how we should understand it. For those well-versed in the history of Christian thought, you will know that this is a favorite text of Calvinists who take it to mean that there were many in Corinth who were not yet Christians but were among the elect. In response, some have suggested that Jesus actually meant there were Christians in Corinth who Paul just did not know. Of course, we've already supposed that was the case for Aquila and Priscilla when he met them, But they are the last of their kind to be mentioned, and that would be strange comfort to Paul when he already had a community of believers who he loved and trusted. Others suggest that this is Jesus simply affirming his sovereign control over the world and assuring Paul that even the unbelieving leaders of the city were ultimately his people and could not act without his permission. Whatever else may be said of this interpretation, it is strange and unlikely for at least two reasons. First, if this generic meaning is the case, then would it not be true of the whole world and not merely Corinth? Second, when Jesus calls these Corinthians his people, he uses the unique term laos, which the Jews use to speak of themselves in distinction from other people. That is, it appears that Jesus is saying these are truly his people. They just do not realize it yet. So, I would partially agree with the Calvinist here. The meaning is that there were many in Corinth who were not yet Christians, but were among the elect. Where I diverge from the Calvinist is in my understanding of who are the elect. Remember those in Pisidian Antioch who Luke says were disposed or appointed to eternal life? This was not because of some divine fiat which added them to a list from which they could not be removed and settled their destiny before the foundation of the world. At least there's nothing like that in Luke's description of things. The meaning there was that these people believed God's promises and wanted to participate in his kingdom and its blessings enough that they were willing to meet the conditions, namely, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus. The elect are not a register of people. They're a class of people. Those who value truth and righteousness, 
whose hearts are humble enough to turn from their own ways and give fealty to King Jesus so that they might receive pardon and new life through him. And God has designed a scheme of redemption that will only work with that sort of people. Those are the sort of people he chose to save and foreknew before the foundation of the world. Those are the sort of people he calls by the gospel and justifies and sanctifies and glorifies and transforms into the image of his son. And Jesus says that there were many such people living in the city of Corinth. So he would not allow any earthly power to interfere with Paul's ministry there. God knows his people throughout the world and throughout time, but we do not. We may look at a city or community or even an individual and utterly dismiss them, but God knows they are his. This is why he warns us not to judge with unrighteous judgment. He calls us to extend just as much mercy and grace and hope to everyone else that we wish to have extended to us. And he has given us an unlimited commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation and make disciples of all nations— Only through a mission that large and that unrelenting can we hope to accomplish God's great purpose in the universe in all of the places and with all of the people he intends. Verse 11, And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Some suggest that the use of teaching here as opposed to preaching means that Paul shifted his focus from evangelism to pastoral work. That may have happened at some point, but since his call to remain in the city was evangelistically motivated, it would not be reasonable to assume that he stopped proclaiming Christ to the unbelievers during this period. He was, of course, joined in this work by Silas and Timothy and perhaps others. As the church grew, added to it were some who would become renowned among believers by Paul's later mention of them, and sometimes by their own acts of service. Chloe and her household, 1 Corinthians 1.11, Quatrus and Erastus, Romans 16.23. It is possible that Chloe's family delivered the letter that the Corinthian church wrote to Paul, precipitating his first canonical epistle to them. We know nothing of Quatrus except that he was called a brother, which in the context of a greeting to Christians probably means that he was either especially beloved or especially brotherly to others. Erastus was a particularly noteworthy man. Paul calls him the treasurer of the city in Romans 16.23. And it may be that an inscription on a piece of pavement in Corinth from the first century, discovered in 1929, refers to him by name. Like the other political figures who turned to Christ in Acts, there's no indication that Erastus set about to reform the Corinthian economy on Christian principles through the government. Instead, the Bible tells us that he changed his vocation and became an evangelist who traveled and preached under the direction of Paul, Acts 19.22. We're not told if Paul appointed elders in the congregations here in Corinth, but we have every reason to suppose he did as soon as qualified men were developed, That was the custom universally in the ancient church. The congregation here certainly needed spiritual guidance, and they seemed to struggle with understanding what true spirituality was based on the things Paul had to write to them in later years. There were rich and poor, 
wise and foolish, scrupulous and libertine, all brought together into one body. And oftentimes we blush and we chafe when we read about the sort of things that happened at that congregation. However, the Corinthian ministry must be regarded as one of the great and beautiful success stories of the gospel in history. I think Mark Moore put it well when he said, Some will criticize Corinth as a corrupt church. I cannot share that sentiment. For all her problems stemmed from the one thing she was doing well, calling all sorts and sundry to the cross with the promise that a resurrection changes everything. There was no other social group in all the ancient world that successfully bridged the social divides of economics, nationality, gender, and politics. The Church of Jesus Christ was the only truly inclusive group. That caused some of her deepest problems, yet it is also her greatest boast. Verse 15. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews, with one accord, rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. The proconsulship of Gallio is one of the best established events in Acts, chronologically speaking. In an inscription discovered at Delphi, we learn that Gallio served in that office over Achaia from May A.D. 51 to April A.D. 52. It could be that Gallio continued in this office for a second year, which would extend the time frame for the events here recorded to between A.D. 51 and 54. However, we do not know at which point in his tenure this trial took place, so it gives a general time for the Corinthian ministry, but that's all. Gallio himself is a remarkable man in Roman history. His proper name was Marcus Aeneas Novatus, and he was the son of the famous rhetorician Seneca and an older brother to the notorious Stoic philosopher of the same name, who tutored Nero when he was a child. Now, Nero became emperor in AD 54. At the very least, that's quite close to this time. Gallio's political and social position then made this the most important trial or altercation that Paul had yet experienced. He was brought to the judgment seat, that is, the bema, in the center of the agora, and accused of persuading men to worship God contrary to the law. Commentators and scholars disagree over whether the Jews were referring to the law of Moses or the Roman law, but in fact both would have been relevant to the accusation. At that point in history, Judaism was a legal religion within the Roman Empire. That was especially granted status, and it had been given to Judaism by Julius Caesar nearly 100 years earlier. And although most people hated the Jews, and their protected status was often threatened due to their own insubordination, so long as Christianity could be shown to have continuity with Judaism, it would also be under the same protection. This is fascinating because in modern evangelism or apologetics, there's often an effort to defend the uniqueness of Christianity against non-Christian Judaism— Sometimes there will be discussions about whether or not Christians and Jews even worship the same God, since Jews deny a Trinitarian understanding of God and the deity of Christ or the Holy Spirit. But at this stage in Christian history, the Apostle Paul, as one of the first apologists for the faith, 
was defending Christianity as the true orthodox line of Judaism. That's precisely how he reasoned about the matter. He saw the Christians as the true Israel, that which began with the remnant from old Israel, of which he was a part, and was now embracing Gentiles into its number through faith in Jesus Christ. The unbelieving Jews, of course, would emphatically deny this and claim that Christianity was an apostasy from their faith and not to be identified with them and therefore not legal. So if Paul taught people to worship God contrary to the law, these critics contended that he was also teaching them to have an illicit religion. If they had won the day, Christianity might have been banned throughout the empire and the mission would have been severely hindered. But verse 14 continues, And when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be a reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to judge on such matters. Galileo was a shrewd man from a family of shrewd men. And it seems he saw through the effort to manipulate his court, and he drove them from the judgment seat, says verse 16, meaning he dismissed the case and cleared the court. Verse 17, Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. The New King James Version identifies those who beat Sosthenes as all the Greeks, But the older manuscripts are ambiguous, and many believe it was the Jews who turned on Sosthenes for failing to see their plan through and gave him the beating they were all hoping Galileo to order for Paul. Galileo saw it take place, but in the typical spirit of the Romans, he did not care about the suffering of a Jew, and he allowed it to happen, even right in front of the judgment seat. However, the remarkable conclusion to this story is passed over by Luke. Sosthenes became a Christian, and even an evangelist and traveling companion of Paul, according to 1 Corinthians 1.1. Indeed, Christ had many people in that city. One of them rejected him and his message for a year and a half in the face of Paul's own preaching, and even led a plot to have Paul arrested and Christianity outlawed before his eyes opened to see the truth. God knows and sees those who are His. We do not. Thus, our only option is to keep working, keep speaking, and marvel and worship as we see the kingdom keeps spreading. Thanks for listening to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. I'm a Christian Bible student and evangelist from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And this podcast is made available by the Congregation of Christians of which I am a member in East Tulsa. Please come meet us if you have the chance. You can learn more about us at our website, TulsaChurchOfChrist.com. Our music is from Andrew Martin, a very talented Christian brother in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas. You can check out his SoundCloud for more beautiful and uplifting productions from him. For news, articles, previous episodes, or to request a Bible study or a lecture series with me, visit vbvpodcast.com. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a good review if you enjoy the studies. God bless and have a great week.
From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's better exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.